There was once a man who was an outdoor man. He loved nature, loved fishing and hunting. And he often would invite people to his cottage. And he would show them his trophies. He would show them the animals that he had shot. And then he would bring them to his living room and over the mantel place there was this massive fish stuffed and mounted on the wall. And he would point all his visitors to this fish, tell them the two hours that he battled to land this fish. A fish, of course, he was very proud. One day a friend came over and he showed him all of this and showed him the stuffed fish mounted on the wall over the mantel place. A few months later, the same friend invited him to his place. And as they sat down for dinner, talking, this fellow who had this stuff fished, sitting at one end of the table, felt something brush against his pants, and he turned to look down, and there was a lion walking past him, comes to his friend, sniffed for a while, rubbed his mane against him, and continued out through the kitchen door. Every hair on his body was an end. Eventually he blurted out, don't tell me that I really saw what I saw. That's a lion. His friend said to him, you have a dead fish. And I have a living lion. There are many in the world who speak of their religion, speak of their faith. There are many who speak of their accomplishments. And it would seem that when Christianity is compared, we come off the loser. That we have not much to speak about or to boast about. But I would want to suggest to you that what the world has, in its aggregate, in its totality, is no greater than a dead, mounted fish. But what we have is a living lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who lives and lives forever. The Gospels, as we have them, as we were reminded earlier, do not conclude with the death of Christ, but with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the living lion of the tribe of Judah. And in the Gospel of John, and chapter 20, we have the distinctive recollection of John the Apostle, the Beloved, of the resurrection of Jesus. When you read this account, it clarifies first and foremost that the fact of the resurrection of Jesus is based upon credible and multiple attestations. 
That is the first thing we must note, at least in verses 1 to 10 of John chapter 20, is that the fact of the revelation of Jesus is based upon credible and multiple attestations. John gives us a number of evidences for the resurrection. And in verses 1 to 10, he gives the first evidence of the empty tomb. He says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciples and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Sam and Peter came following him and went into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but clothed, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know that the scripture, that, that, know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. The first evidence that John gives is the evidence of the empty tomb. Here we re read that Mary Magdalene, arrives at the tomb early. She comes on the first day of the week. That would be our Sunday after the Sabbath. And she comes to the tomb ostensibly to anoint the body of Christ. We must not conceive that because Jesus was hastily buried, that adequate preparation had not been made. Rather, the anointing that she and the other women would have done would have been a sign of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. She comes to the tomb early, and there is then this difference in the synoptic gospel. In fact, the synoptic gospel tells us that Mary Magdalene was not alone, and that there was another Mary. Matthew tells us that. Salome, Mark tells us, was also present. And Luke, in Luke 24, tells us that Joanna was there. But it appears, at least chronologically, that Mary had arrived first, and perhaps they joined her later. She, she may have arrived when it was yet dark. Whatever one makes of the chronology, she comes to the tomb. And when she arrives at the tomb, she finds that the stone that was used to enclose the tomb, perhaps it was cut in a, in, in, in a, in a, in a cliff or on the side of a hill, but the stone was there to guard and to protect the tomb of the Lord Jesus. And when she arrives, she finds that the stone had been rolled away and taken away from the tomb. This was, of course, a great surprise. And so she runs to tell Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, most likely a reference to John the Apostle himself. And this is the message she conveyed to them. She said, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. 
and we do not know where they laid him. What she believed was that the body of Jesus had been stolen. Had been stolen by the enemies. This is what it appeared to be to her. She could think of no other reason why the body of Christ was missing. She clearly was not expecting the resurrection. By all intents and purposes, the body of Jesus Christ had been stolen. Leon Morris tells a story of a group of children who were visiting a hospital. And they were being chaperoned. And the person who was going along with them was pointing out all the gadgets and scientific inventions that were in the hospital that was there to keep them healthy. And they came to an operating theater. And then the guide told the students that this is the operating theater, one of them, and the surgeons and attendants who work here, they all wear masks. And so the guide said to the students, do you know why they wear masks? And they thought about it for a while and discussed it among themselves, and eventually one bright boy responded. And he said, they wear masks so that when they make a mess of it, no one will know who did it. As far as he was concerned, that was how it appeared to him. That's why they wore masks. And as far as Mary Magdalene was concerned, the body of Jesus had been stolen by some enemy. She says clearly to Peter and to John. She says, and we do not know where they had laid him. Well, this news impels the disciples to respond. And John and Peter hot-footed to the tomb of Jesus. They ran together. But we are told that John outran Peter. And some have conjectured that John might have been younger than Peter. Or some said that maybe John took a shortcut. Because he knew the area well. But the text says that they ran together. So at least they were going in the same direction. He outran him. For whatever the reasons, we do not know he outran him. Perhaps Peter just wanted him to, to win. Well, we do not know. But what we do know is that John arrives at the tomb of Jesus. And when he arrives at the tomb of Jesus, he does not rush in. Some situations require caution. You know, it's, it's one of the things in winter driving that I'm often amazed by, and I'm sure you are. You know, here, here, here you are on the DVP or some other highway, and it's bad. It's snowing outside. The road is ice, and everybody's slipping over the place. And then there comes another fellow over there. He has a truck. He has a winter tire, and he goes speeding down. And then often... At least sometimes you find him in the ditch. Sometimes caution is necessary. John comes to the tomb. He does not know what has happened. But he's cautious. And he stoops. And he looks into the tomb. And when he looks into the tomb. We are told. That he sees. The grave cloth of Jesus Christ, the clothing, the linen cloths that were used to cover him, he saw that in the tomb. Verse 5, he stooped 
stooping down and looking in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. This is a strange situation. Clearly he does not know what to make of this. Peter, however, arrives on the scene and shows no such hesitation. And perhaps there's a reason why, because of Peter's character. He rushes in to the tomb. And John tells us that when Peter goes into the tomb, he sees the linen cloths, the clothing that had been wrapped around the deceased, around the body of Christ, but that he sees something more. He sees the headpiece, the sudaran, which the, the translators here translate the handkerchief. It was a piece that was put, it seemed, on the head of the dead person. It ran from beneath his chin up to the top of his head and was tied at the top of the head. And its intent was to keep the jaws together so that the mouth wouldn't swing open. When he got into the tomb, he sees the grave clothing lying in one place and this headpiece lying separately, folded up. It is a scene, not of chaos, but a neatly placed scene. It is after this, then, that John comes in to the tomb. And we are told that when he came to the tomb and he entered and he saw the scene before him, that he saw and he believed. The text does not say what he believed. But it may very well be that he believed that Jesus Christ was raised. I want you to understand that John is the only one who goes into this kind of detail about the resurrection of Jesus. The reason that the writer stresses the separation of the clothing or the cloths that surrounded the body of Jesus and his separation from the headpiece is that he wishes, it seems, to intimate that Jesus Christ, his body was not stolen by robbers, but that he rose through the grave clothing. And that is why they were neatly placed, and that is why the headpiece was separate from the rest that covered his body. He came through it. This is not mere conjecture, because we've seen later on that Jesus Christ is able to pass through solid door and to enter locked rooms. It makes then that the thesis of grave robbery untenable. Because there would have been no reason for thieves to unwrap the body of Jesus. Given the reality that grave robbery was a capital offense, anyone who went to steal a body wouldn't be taking their time to unwrap a body, and they wouldn't leave a neat scene behind them. Jesus Christ, therefore, the empty tomb is the first evidence that, is, that the writer points to that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. In verse 9 we are told that they did not understand that the scriptures had spoken of the resurrection. What the scriptures then teach is that Jesus must not only go to Jerusalem, but that he must rise. In verse 9, for as yet they did not know the scripture 
that he must rise again from the dead. Christ must die in Jerusalem and he must also rise on the first day of the week. But the chapter presents another evidence of the resurrection and that is the personal appearance of Jesus. This is now the second strand of evidence in the chapter that points to the resurrection. That is the appearance of Jesus to Mary. We read that the disciples went home in verse 10. But Mary is still at the tomb. And she is weeping. Not only has she in her own thinking lost the Lord Jesus. But now she does not even have the privilege of showing her devotion to the body of Jesus by anointing it. For her, this is the most tragic of circumstances. The Savior has been killed and his body is also missing. John tells us that Mary stooped down and like himself, she looked into the tomb. And as she does, she sees two angels, two visitors from heaven. The synoptic gospels would speak of men or young men. But these are angelic beings in the form of human beings. And they are dressed in white, sitting down in the tomb, one at the head and one at the foot where Jesus, his body, had lain. These angels turned to her and said, Woman, why are you weeping? What is your reason for weeping? There is an implicit encouragement for her to rejoice. But before anything else, she reminds them that they had taken away the Lord. She's still insisting on theft of the body. She says, I do not know where they have laid him. She must have thought, well, why, why would you want to know why I'm weeping? I must be weeping. They have stolen the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right then, for whatever the reason, we are told that Mary turned around. Did she see the angels looking at Jesus behind her? Did she hear his footsteps? We cannot say. But she turns around. And Jesus asks her essentially the same question asked by the angels. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Why are you weeping? And she looks at him and thinks of him to be the gardener. And so she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. If there's anybody who's going to know what happened, if there's anybody who holds a secret, if there's anybody who understands where the body of Christ has been moved to and placed, this must be the gardener. It's interesting that, that Tertullian, the second century theologian, said that there were some Jews 
who said that the gardener was the one who removed the body of Jesus. And the reason he did so was because he did not want his lettuce to come to harm from the crowd that would visit the tomb of Jesus. He didn't want the crowd to trample on his lettuce that he had planted in the garden. Well, they, like Mary, believed that the gardener had removed the body. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she recognized his voice and she said, Rabboni in Aramaic meaning teacher. Perhaps tenderly dear master. She recognizes the Lord. That he was risen. And it seems that her initial at least her initial response, her instinctive response, is to cling to Jesus. We read where Jesus tells her, he says, do not cling to me. Some translation says, touch, do not touch me. And the verb can be translated either to touch or to cling, but I think it is more appropriate here to, to read it as to cling. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, and to my God, and to your God. What, do you, what does Jesus mean, do not cling to me because I have not ascended to my Father? There's some difficulty in understanding what is happening here, but I think that Carson, D.A. Carson, says it best. That is, when he says, do not cling to me, he means, stop clinging, clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. That is, I am not yet in, a, in an ascended state. In other words, you don't have to hang on to me as if I'm about to disappear. What our Lord is saying to her then, you don't have to be holding on to me in the fear that if you let go of me, I'm going to disappear. I'm going to be around for yet a while. I have not yet gone to heaven. I'm not about to depart from heaven. For heaven, I'm going to be here for the next 40 days. So you don't need to cling to me. This is not the time to cling to me. You can do so later on. But you have good news to bring. And therefore you must go. You must indeed tell my disciples this good news. Go to my brethren and say to them that I'm ascending to my father and to your father and to my God and to your God. You see, John is very clear that the Jesus that Mary encountered is not the Jesus of the imagination. This is not a spiritual Jesus. This is a physical, risen Jesus, the one who could be heard and one who could be touched. That Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. It is interesting that he says to her that she must go and say to him, my brethren, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Our Lord Jesus makes a distinction between his relationship as son to the father and the disciples' responsibility and, and relationship as sons to God the father. You see, he is the son of God, the uncreated, unadopted son of God. He's a son of God by nature. But they are sons of God by adoption. 
They are sons of God by grace. Their sonship is mediated through Christ. It is because they are in Christ, because they are united to Christ, the Son of God, that they are then sons, little s, of God. Our Lord distinguishes the relationship between himself and the Father and their relationship with the Father. And so we see then the second evidence given that is of Mary's encounter with the risen Jesus. John gives us a third proof, and that is Jesus' appearance to the disciples in verse 19 and following. We read that the same evening, or the same day at evening, that is on the first day of the week, when the door was shut, when the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, here they are in Jerusalem, in a home in Jerusalem. It seems that the disciples were in terror, that, that the leadership of the Jews, having killed the Lord Jesus, might take it on themselves to arrest them and possibly to put them to death also. And so they are hiding out. They are in fear of their lives. In fact, it is not that the door of the house was shut, but it was barricaded. It was bolted. That's the language. And then John says, Jesus came and stood in the midst. Here they are in abject terror and panic, living in fear. And suddenly, while they are in this barred room, Jesus appeared in the midst. And he said to them, peace be with you. This is the greetings that he brings. He brings the shalom of God. He brings the peace, the peace of reconciliation with God. And the Lord Jesus, knowing their propensity to unbelief, he shows them his hand and his side in verse 20. And the disciples were glad. They began to rejoice. The, their greatest fear, their greatest disappointment was that their Savior had died, but now he appeared in their midst, raised, and they are rejoicing. And the good news of Jesus Christ raised from the dead should not only cause us to ponder, but it should cause us to rejoice. We read of a fourth proof of his resurrection, that is his appearance to Thomas in verses 24 to 29. Thomas, who is called the twin, called Didymus, and called by us Thomas the Doubter. You know, I, I, I do think that Thomas has gotten a bad reputation. First of all, I am not completely satisfied that had we been in the first century, we would have been as believing as we think we would be. We kind of responding, I don't think it's mock horror, it's genuine horror that Thomas could be so unbelieving. But the, the suggestion is that we would not ever, ever have doubted his resurrection. And furthermore, I say that Thomas has gotten a bad rap and needs to be rehabilitated. His reputation needs to be re rehabilitated. Because it was not that Thomas was the only doubter. 
the passage that you read from the Mark on account tells us that the disciples did not believe. They heard the reports. Jesus is risen, but they did not believe. Unbelief characterized the disciples as a whole, not just Thomas. It seemed that he was the most, however, vociferous in his denials. And hence, he singled out here. So, Thomas was not there when Jesus came and showed himself to them. And we are told that when he returned, by the way, they are called the twelve, not because in verse 24 it says, now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. We know that there was eleven disciples, Thomas was not there, so there would not have been twelve. But twelve is simply a reference to the disciples. It's, it became then a technical designation for the apostles. And when, they, when, when Thomas arrived, they told him, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas responds, unless I see in his hands a print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came and stood and came, sorry, the door being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hand and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. It's important to realize that, that Jesus, though he appeared to have been absent when Thomas was saying, I'm not going to believe until I see the scars and until I put my hands into the nail prints, that Jesus, however, knew what he was saying. That is why he said to him, put your hands here. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas, he does not respond. He doesn't go and hang on to Jesus or test to see if he's real. He sees him, he hears him, and he says, My Lord and my God. A tremendous statement to be made by a Jew. Because he's calling the Lord Jesus Christ. God himself. My Lord and my God. The sight and sound of Jesus were enough for him. He acknowledges that Jesus is the incarnated Son of God. My friends, we've seen the evidence laid out here by John. The empty tomb, his appearance to Mary, his appearance to the disciples, and his appearance even to doubting Thomas. But if the resurrection of Jesus is based upon credible and multiple attestations, John tells us in chapter 20 that the resurrection of Jesus, secondly, is the basis of the mission of the church. When Jesus comes to the disciples, he says, peace be with you. And he repeats the same thing in verse 21. He says to them, peace be to you. And then he makes this profound statement. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. You see, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus is now the basis and the ground of mission. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus was sent by the Father. And now that he's raised from the dead, 
he sends the disciples. I, I, I myself am sending you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. It is because he's raised from the dead that he sends the disciples to be his missionaries and apostles throughout the world with the gospel. As the Father has sent me, I send you. It's only the resurrected Christ who can send his people. But notice that he does not expect them to go out in their own strength. So John says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That though he sends them, he sends them in the power of the Spirit. What is of note is that Jesus now in this context becomes the bestower of the Spirit. He has already told the disciples earlier in the farewell discourse that he would send them the paracletus when he ascends into heaven. But now he breathes on them and gives them the empowerment of the Spirit. This is not yet Pentecost. There seems to be a two-part impartation of the Spirit. There is first a breathing of them and a, and a communication of them to, to them of the Spirit. And then later at Pentecost, the fullness of the Spirit comes. So you see this two-step approach in the Gospel relating to the coming of the Spirit. You and I, however, live in a different era. The Spirit of God comes to us once, but because they lived in the in-between time, in the overlap of the ages between the old and the new era, we see that there is a manifestation, strange manifestation. They receive the Spirit of God first. Jesus now is presented as the bestower of the Spirit. And we talk about him as the Lord of the Spirit. Not that he rules over the Spirit, but functionally, he is the Lord of the Spirit. Indeed, Paul could say, now the Lord is a Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Paul does not suggest that there is this ontological unity or identity between Christ and the Spirit. Christ is not the Spirit. But that because they are so closely related in their work and function. The Spirit so fulfills the task of communicating to men the benefit of Christ. He does it so well that it is as if though Christ himself is bestowing his grace. One writer says he portrays the Lord so well that we lose sight of the Spirit and are conscious of the Lord only. The Lord breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit. He's the bestower of the Spirit. And then he tells them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sin of any, they are retained. And this must not be taken to mean what many have done in the church, to mean that only those who are priests or spiritual leaders can forgive sins and can retain sins. I think what is meant here is simply that these disciples of our Lord would go forth to preach the word of God. And that those who repent of their sins will receive and should receive proclamation from the apostles that their sins are forgiven. Whereas those 
who refuse to repent and believe will also receive proclamation that their sins are still with them. doesn't mean that they have the power to unilaterally forgive men or to unilaterally maintain their sins, but merely to announce the forgiveness of God which comes with repentance and to also announce that the wrath of God remains on those who refuse to repent. Well, if the resurrection of Jesus is the basis of mission, it leads thirdly to conclude that the resurrection of Jesus is an essential element in the overall presentation of Jesus as the object of faith or belief. John lays a very clear emphasis upon belief in this 20th chapter. He tells us that John, that he himself comes to the tomb and when he goes in and sees the grave clothing, he believes. Verse 20, he writes that Jesus tells Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. He tells Thomas in verse 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And then he brings at the end of chapter 20, the purpose statement of John. Why did he write John? He says in verse 30, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That fundamentally, all that Jesus did and all that to which John pointed regarding Christ, should lead them to believe. It should lead them to believe that Jesus, the Son of God, is the Christ. That they must believe. The reason that Christ was raised from the dead is that they ought to believe. And that by believing, they are not left unaffected, but by believing, they will receive eternal life in His name that they will trust in his character, the character of the risen Christ, and those who do so will re receive eternal life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, presented then by scripture, must be seen as rooted in history and based upon eyewitness testimony. Jesus could speak of his resurrection, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up. No one takes my life from me, he says, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This charge I received from my father, John 10. Our Lord Jesus spoke of his resurrection. In John 11, we see the resurrection of Lazarus, a harbinger of Christ's own resurrection. That he will come victorious as a hero from the tomb. In Acts chapter 1 verse 3, Luke says that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proof, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. What am I saying? I'm saying this evening that John presents Jesus as the risen Lord. And he provides the evidence. The empty tomb and the appearance 
the bodily appearance of Jesus. In 1877, the Cambridge mathematician and philosopher William Clifford, who himself had been influenced by David Hume of a previous era, sided with Hume in suggesting and in accepting the notion that miracles never happened, that there are no such things as miracles. Hume was a skeptic who did not believe in miracles. And Clifford embraced this view. He didn't believe in miracles. He penned this essay in 1877 in which an essay which he entitled The Ethics of Belief in which he concluded that it is always wrong everywhere for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. Now that is a statement that has drawn a lot of criticism. It is always wrong anywhere for anyone to believe anything based on insufficient evidence. So there are people today just like Bertrand Russell who said that if he ever stands before God and God were to ask him, Bertrand, why didn't you believe in me? He would say, because Lord, you did not give me enough evidence. And all the Lord has to do is to tell him, go and read John 20. Because the Gospels are clear that Jesus Christ was seen alive. That he spent 40 days with his disciples. That he ate with them and drank with them. That they heard him. That they touched him. Jesus Christ is risen. And the reason today that men will not believe, it is not because there is not sufficient evidence, but because they will not to believe. In other words, it does not matter what the evidence will be. It does not matter how much proof they are given, so long as they have drawn in their minds a priori that miracles cannot happen, they will never accept the miracle of a resurrected Christ. But if it is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence, it is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone not to believe anything upon sufficient evidence. The reality is, what is sufficient evidence? You see, when a man does not believe, he will always find excuses. Even if Jesus Christ were to come in the middle of the night and shock him, he would go away saying, he had a dream. How do I know it really happened? I mean, people are questioning today if they are alive. How do I know that there's a reality? How do I know you're out there and how do you know I'm here? You see, men do not believe, not because they have no evidence, but because they will not believe. But you and I are called upon to believe, to believe the testimony of God. We are to make every man a liar and God 
the one who speaks truth. We are to believe that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead because by believing, we are given eternal life. We must believe, but our belief must not only be an initial belief, but a continuing belief. And it is not only the act of belief that is important, but it is the content of our belief. Because we must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That he is the Messiah, that he is the gift of God. We must believe that he died for our sins and that God raised him on the third day and that he's exalted to heaven and that he's coming again. We must believe the testimony of the Son of God. Because it is only by believing in this testimony that we will be saved. And you having believed in him, you must know that you are sent. You are sent to a lost and to a dying world. Your task is not to convince men. Your task is not to make them believe. But your task is to present to them a living Jesus. So that whenever a man enters into conversation. And whenever he or she, a woman wants to debate the merits of Christianity. And he, whether they want to compare it with other religions. I want you to do one thing. I want you to remind them that Jesus Christ is not a dead fish but a living lion. That he rose from the dead and that he's alive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis of our faith. May God help you. May he help us all to go forth with this good news. That Jesus is alive and he is doing well. That Jesus Christ is alive and that he is coming again. May God so bless you that you stand on the testimony of scripture and declare this truth for Jesus' sake.